0: So I want to <clears throat> uh, do the second part of the talk I was talking about last week, about how all aspects of our life, of the path, everything the Buddha taught, is in, of course, service of service of uh, the steadfast deliverance of heart, of mind, the unshakable deliverance of heart, of mind. And another way we can look at that is all these different teachings are for different ways of helping us purify the habits of mind to shift from being caught in the greed, the confusion, the hatred, and moving to the wholesome, to wisdom. So, I don't know if you remember, I spoke about the kind of three levels of kalasas. it's talked about, the transgressive ones, and talked about how um, cultivating the heart of generosity, <clears throat> and cultivating sila virtue non-harming behavior are really um, powerful in the direction of liberation practices for shifting the habits in all different aspects of life the second level the um, obsessive kalesa obsessive uh, torments is um mitigated by the collectedness of mind by concentration. And Guy spoke about this last night. I think I don't need to say too much about it. But that sense of when there's a, just as he said, when all the energy of the mind, which has been just running here and there, and often in the running here and there, without recognizing it, falling into the habits of confusion, of greed. That when the, uh, mind is more collected, more um, coming together in a wholesome way, then as that gets really strong in, in that time, the kalesa is like a protection from the kalesa. They don't get in. There's a sense of uh, purity. One of the reasons it can be so pleasant It's a sense of the, the, the peace and ease of mind that isn't being tormented by the Kalesa at that moment. That's um, important to appreciate. I'm not gonna say much more about it because I have a lot of material to cover and Guy did talk about that last night. But it's um, as anyone who's experienced this sense of the happiness and the sukha of the concentrated mind, recognizing that it's because it's free from kalesa at that time appreciating what that feels like that peace the happiness of the mind that heart that's not tormented but it's of course very conditioned and as as anyone knows when the collectedness begins to disintegrate then you find out that the kalesa aren't uprooted they were held at bay And that's okay, I mean, that's useful, but often we've thought they were uprooted and we're a little bit disappointed to find them coming back. We don't know what we did wrong, right? But just to recognize that. And sometimes it happens as the collectedness disintegrates, as I think I mentioned ages ago, it can happen at a certain point that once in a while, for some reason a, a torment of kalesa comes flying up really strong just when the concentration's disintegrating and you get a it's a bad mix because as um the concentration' concentration's not completely gone and as Tejaniya likes to say samadhi or concentration magnifies, right? We see everything so much more clearly. The kalesas exaggerate. I think everything's so much out of proportion. You put those two together, it's a bad combo. And that's what we call it when it's just so intense sometimes on retreat. That's kind of what's going on. And just so in the moment you didn't do something wrong, but it's really, can be overwhelming. And it's certainly surprising when it happens like that. But very important and really understanding the, the power of the collected mind and heart, to um, keep away the obsessive, the obsessive kalesa. We're just thinking, thinking, thinking about it. That's just not coming up. And many, many of you have described that in your retreat. So what I want to talk about the rest of the talk is this third level called the, the latent kalesas. This is the one that we really this is the one that really surprises us and it keeps on surprising us it's described as the underlying potential or possibility for these tormenting mental factors to arise given the appropriate conditions so it's like basically like a a sea although it's not sitting there they're not just sitting there they're arising and passing due to conditions <laughs> just the conditions might come more frequently sometimes but it says if a seed but it's not really a seed because it's not really there okay this is just a metaphor it says if there's a seed and it just lying there for you know however long years and when it gets water and sunlight and the right kind of dirt and all it sprouts it's like that the so-called latent torments the potential for them to come and i'll I'll say a bit about that in a minute but just to to go back to that's why it's the i don't want to say the practice but this commitment this interest in using all the different aspects of our life to see how this works and to cultivate the wholesome and to see all these different ways of purifying the heart, the mind, not just deep meditation retreats, why it's so important. Because it's not only in retreats (laughs) that these latent kalesa come popping up, as I think we know very well. But as someone, I think, um, I thought Annie did a beautiful, is that something, I really liked her response this morning in asking about, you know, we get to see a certain level to really understand, really see. Uh, there's the real insight into for example dispassion and does it stay like that and of course you know the answer is no the insight comes and we really understand but every moment of consciousness is a new moment the mind's always arising consciousness and the different mental factors always arising and changing so even moments of deep insight and we're really recognizing on a like a cellular level for example that there's nothing to want and feeling the peace of that or really the mind is just turning away from some old habit that brought us suffering and that's that's so clear we can't imagine going back to it and then you know then it comes up again and this um once you've been through it like a hundred million times, (laughs) you start to understand this is just how it is. It's not something I'm doing wrong. Getting all reactive to it is both useless, inappropriate, and brings a lot more suffering. It says, oh, this is how it is. This is how things are. This is where we're talking about the latent underlying tendencies until we really start to trust that, it can certainly bring up a lot of dismay, d- discouragement. And then, of course, that inevitably is followed by doubt. Doubt that you I did something wrong, doubt that what's the point of this practice, I've been doing this and the stuff's still coming up, but it's hopeless. And that kind of skeptical doubt, not the doubt where after a retreat's over and you're not in the intense space, you might want to really reflect Especially if it's new to you, the practice, you might want to reflect and say, does this seem helpful? Does this seem appropriate? That's, of course we do that. But that's not skeptical doubt. That's different. The skeptical doubt is just this, oh no, this is happening. It can't be right. Everything's wrong. Everything's bad. Oh, you know, you know. We, we've talked about that a lot. So starting to go through this and see how it works and see how we can, again, access mindfulness, in different ways, in different conditions, and that these latent kalesa can, can spring up, as again, sometimes more frequently than others, but that mindfulness can be remembered. That the wisdom that was, the insights that were there, they, maybe they're not always um, right there in the perception, but they're accessible in a way. Sometimes we can remember our way into them. I think Guy talked about that. Sometimes it's just not even conscious, but it's like, I like to say cellularly or something, you know, really caught in greed, but there's something that knows, oh, caught feels like this. It's a little bit different. So... So I want to talk about these in terms of um, a particular sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya that I really like it. it, I think it's considered one of the more important suttas. It's the second one called, um, it's called All the Asavas. That's the name of it. Asava is the word that's usually translated as taints. which like stains. I think Guy used that the other night. There's not a great word for it, but it's basically referring to the underlying latent, this latent um, level of kalesa, the taints. And, and Guy mentioned what they are. They're talking about three very specific ones, the, the potential for sense desire to arise, for bhava, for becoming, this sense of, you know, this grasping, coming a particular self in a moment. And the third is for ignorance to arise. So these are the most subtle underlying tendencies. And this sutta uh, called All the Asavas, where he talks about seven different ways or seven different methods, you could say, for bringing wise attention to the arising of these these, I'm going to use asava just because I don't like the word taints. You, the arising of one of these asavas when it's present, and then the wise attention to see what kind of attention, what we pay attention to, and how we pay attention, what's feeding this strengthening of the asava, and what's starving it. So you'll recognize that from the from the wise effort, um, the way they describe it. You know, what feeds and what starves. So. It's um, really interesting because it's wise attention is at the core of each of these. But these seven different ways, and this isn't like, okay, the first one is insight, wise attention, and then there's six others. It's not like he's saying, okay, you losers, if you can't do the insight, here's these six others ways. All of them, he's saying, are for really uprooting these tendencies and coming to the complete end of suffering. And you'll hear, that's why I said there's a lot to cover going through all of these. These are ways we live our life. They're not just about retreat aspects, but they're all appropriate to retreat. But it's really about how we live our life. And that's why it's really, I find this really uh, a very useful I've been going back to this sutta over and over, over many years. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just keep referring. But he, he talks about um, how these asavas can be exhausted. in one, Exhausted means come to an end. So that's code for complete awakening. In one who knows and sees not in one who does not know and see. And he's using see for understand here. What wise attention and unwise attention. So when one attends unwisely, both unarisen asavas arise and arisen ones increase. So this is that formula. When one attends wisely, unarisen asavas do not arise and arisen ones are abandoned. Okay, so we're familiar with this. This is wise attention. And then he goes through the seven. I'll start, I'll just go through each one. I won't give you the whole list first. So the first one is abandoned by seeing, which means abandoned by insight. And here he's really talking about wise attention. So he says, a person who um, is unskilled does not understand what dhammas are fit for attention. And what dhammas are not fit for attention and so they don't attend to the things that are fit and they attend to what's unfit and then we attend in a way that is unwise so when me put it in my own language it gets complicated here um, how to pay attention why did i touch this <laughs> i guess i did so it's noticing that if we're paying attention to something And whatever it is, the asava, say, sense desire, keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. There's something about the object itself, but more likely the way we're paying attention, that's increasing that. And so we notice, we're always with wise attention, reflecting wisely, we're noticing how we're paying attention and what's the effect, what's the result. So, It's not that the fitness is inherent in the object. So when we say sense desire arises from giving attention to something that's very beautiful, and then our tendency can be to think, well, I should never look at the beautiful because then desire will arise. You know how then we go into aversion, which if you're noticing, that's also a, a, a taint. But it's not that, it's how we pay attention, how we pay attention. So... We pay attention in a way that, let me read you this, I really like this, just to say simple with the hindrances, with sense desire, which is also one of the hindrances, but we can relate to this. A way that we pay attention unwisely, you could be really focused, say, on an attractive object, but the unwise attention is that the focus is really attending to the gratification, To the beautiful aspect and the sense of personal gratification in that. So say you're thinking about, you smell something for lunch, you smell lasagna and you really like lasagna, and so you keep smelling, and you're going smelling, smelling, but really smelling. (laughs) It's so nice, smelling, and we just, you know, subtly keep doing that. With wise attention, reflecting wisely, as the Buddha says. You'll start to notice that the desire, the sense desire, is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And then we can see, oh, that's unwise attention. And some of the other ways are ways we can work with that. When you've noticed that, though, I'll just say simply, we come back to mindfulness of smelling, where if you're too caught, divert the attention to something neutral. Ill will, and we've talked about this as well, it grows, it's cultivated. When the attention is unwise, we're focusing on an on a unpleasant object, but the attention keeps getting drawn into the, this is the, from the sutta, the repugnant aspect, you know? So there's someone that's bugging you, and you just keep looking at the thing that bugs you, the thing that bugs you, the thing that bugs you, right? And so that's unwise attention. And it's not saying the thing, that there's something wrong with what you're looking at. But seeing that the way you're paying attention is feeding the asava. So with wise, again, with wise attention, we notice that tendency in the mind. We say, okay, let's shift. Let's stop doing that. And if you can't quite tell in the moment how the attention is unwise, then shift to something else, something neutral. You get a sense then how that works. So when we're paying attention, in the wrong way the old habits are so strong they just come shooting up so that's one way the second way of unwise attention so that's that feeds sense desire but unwise attention uh, this is from the sutta, that feeds bhava is when there's a sense uh, maybe in a, a deep meditative state or there's a, again, uh, the attention is subtly on the gratification. And if there's gratification, there's also the sense of self, this, that's kind of me getting a little stronger in that moment. And so that bhava, that sense of becoming, you know, you can it's also bhava it's a kind of craving, but just the, and that can also be doesn't also have to be with um, only with. Um, beautiful meditation states. He gives examples of how we attend unwisely, just how we're thinking about stuff in relationship to me. I won't read this all, but how one attends unwisely. Thinking about some experience. Well, how was I in the past? Was I in the past? What was I? How was I? Having been uh, in what in the past, what will I be in the future? Or will I not be in the future? Or how will I be in the future? Or, what shall the future happen? And blah, 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 blah. blah you get totally caught in a thicket of views. Basically, as I say, that's all about me. But so we think we're paying attention, but we're really caught into this sense of becoming, becoming, becoming. And the way the third unwise attention is, is how the delusion, moha, comes is when um, one is attending to any mundane thing, any object whatsoever in the way through, the, through any of the, the uh, vipalasas, the perversions of perception. So again, Guy was talking about that last night. We're Not seeing through wise attentions through the lens of the Four Noble Truths. Unwise is, you know, recognizing, thinking something's permanent or perceiving it as permanent, perceiving it as um, giving us some kind of reliability, seeing it as self or belonging to self. So you can see those unwise attentions happen a lot and certainly this is on the level of our of our deep meditation where we're really starting to be able to see these subtleties of wise and unwise attention so i'm not going to go into it more because i want to just mention the other ones but this is something we've talked about and i think you can really understand and seeing how subtle it is I hope it can not be discouraging, but rather feed faith that every time there's wise attention, that's shifting the habit. You know, you don't get a big, you know, neon light, habit shifting, habit shifting. <laughs> but each time, it is, it is shifting something. So that's the insight, the first one, and you can see how that can really purify. As we know... On retreat or off retreat, that's not always available to us. So these are some of the other things the Buddha's saying. And he's, he's, you know, he has them a list, but he's not saying one's better than the other, just depending on circumstances. So the second one is what can be abandoned by restraining. And this is restraint at the sense doors. I'll just read the beginning of what he says. What can be abandoned by restraint? Here, a bhikkhu, reflecting wisely, abides with the eye faculty restrained the ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. While asavas and fever of defilement <laughs> might arise in a bhikkhu who abides with the eye faculty unrestrained, there are no asavas or fever of defilement in one when they abide with the senses restrained. Again, I mentioned this a bit. By restrained, we really don't mean hating all sense experience, okay? It's uh, the optimum sense of restraint is restraint at the sense doors, bringing satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom, to meet what's happening as close to the sense contact as possible, right? Not and so reflecting wisely, and he always says this reflecting wisely, one brings in restraint. So, the first restraint is just so take the eye door or the ear door, not just wildly looking around at everything, you know. And I, I think we've all recognized how that works here, how the seclusion of retreat is really supportive. And just, I mean, dining room practice, of course. Is really good for this. Just going in and and if you're seeing, noticing how when you're kind of really unrestrained, when you're not being mindful of seeing and you're just looking all around, how the judgments and the papancha and the stories start and just start feeding and you get really far really fast. And pretty much the papancha is usually fed by Asavas, by Kalesa. And how just restrain at the scent. Not like, oh, I'm afraid to look, I'm afraid to hear, I don't want to taste. If I taste pleasant, I'm going to be lost. It's not that. Not at all, because that's just cultivating aversion. But it's really just simplifying, just being present with the pleasant taste and not trying to have 10 million, you know, you go and this, this, could be good. That could be good. Let me try every single thing in the little bowl for the salad. Cause each of those could be good, you know, and you can just watch that wanting that just, just okay. Simplify restraint in that way. You don't have to follow every sense desire. You can notice it and just simplify and be, be present in that way. So these are two ways of restraint, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Otherwise it's kind of like, sometimes I've ever had this sense of cravings, just looking for something to land on. Sense, desire, just looking for something to land on. Like I call it, you know, you used to have mail order catalogs. It's like mail order catalog mind. You get a catalog, I don't want anything, but you're looking through it, I'm looking through it. And then after a while you realize you're looking for something to want just because it's there you know and so it's like that's restraint close the catalog put it down you don't need to do that so it's not about from outside judging which things are good which things are bad again it's always with rise reflection wise attention look and see is the sense desire um, habit being fed right in this moment as you're looking around all over the place maybe it's not maybe there's a lot of mindfulness wisdom and you're really seeing how they're seeing and perception and thought arises and it's not going creating more asava then fine you know so it's not like it's always one way it's really bringing in this wise attention and seeing what's feeding the wholesome what's feeding and out of Compassion for yourself, not out of trying to get it right, but out of really seeing. Yeah, this is another way to start to and continue to purify these suffering habits. This is—it's not that we don't pay attention to pleasant sense experience, all six of them. It can be very helpful to brighten the heart and mind, but just knowing the difference between, as Thich Nhat Han says. When we're obsessed with sense pleasures, we suffer. When there's the happiness of a peaceful mind that really brightens us, there's no complication. There's no suffering. That's that's supportive and onward leading. We can really tell the difference more and more and more, not making yourself bad or good or bad, but just bringing in this wise attention in terms of restraint at the sense doors. I mean you can also restrain so much that you're feeding aversion and fear. That's also, that's also not wise attention, right? So just exploring this. On the most simple level, as Ajahn Chah said, when the nose smells an odor, let it be. Leave it at the nose. Or another time he said, you know, sound doesn't bother us. We go out and disturb the sound. So just exploring, just exploring this. And this is obviously something we can do a lot in our in our daily life. This isn't just about being on retreat. It's not really incredibly subtle. So that's by restraining. The next one, and I, I like this one a lot, is... Um, Abandoned by using. So how are asavas abandoned by using? Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely, so this is talking about a monk, but this would be the same for us, uses a robe or uses clothes for protection from cold, for protection from heat, from protection from contact with insects, wind burning, and so forth, and for the purposes of concealing what disturbs conscience. but <laughs> put very tidily. <laughs> Reflecting wisely, one uses food, neither for amusement, nor for vanity, nor for making yourself look good or for embellishment, but for the, for the endurance, for the continuance of this body, for ending discomfort, the discomfort of hunger and for you know supporting us in our life in our holy life and thus shall i terminate old feelings like old unfeeling unpleasant difficult feelings of hunger without arousing new ones without arousing greed and blameless shall i live in comfort and health so you know living in comfort and health and eating and also how you deal with medicine how you deal with where you live but in general spreading it out is like really looking at how do we use, how do we relate to how we use all the requisites of our life. And of course, it's it's really interesting in terms of the whole environmental aspect of our planet now. But we're not talking about having a view and saying you should do this, you shouldn't do that, and everybody else should do that as well, because that's attachment to view we're talking about really looking for our own self how do am i relating to buying new clothes or how i decide what to wear today or how i decide what to eat or how much i eat not from an idea of should but really watching is in this moment is the way i'm using feeding greed or feeding baba feeding becoming sense of self it's really interesting it's really interesting think one of the, um, and we're all different, so it's not a right answer, but looking and seeing, you know, and it's really using what we need and not needing more brings in a real sense of contentment and peace in ourselves. It's, It's an aspect of simplicity, an aspect of, I don't want to say renunciation, but it's similar, but the renunciation, as Guy said last night, it's on a different level, but it comes out of the ease of non-clinging, not needing to become. So I was thinking about this. I mean, there's 10 million examples, but I was thinking about uh, the eight precepts. Which it's not at all that everyone should do that. It's not appropriate for everyone. But but one of the ways it's interesting if one uh, one if it's appropriate for one's body or you, one is just interested in doing it. And some people have you know mentioned this to me in interviews where taking the the eighth precept, which, of course, we know the main one of that is not eating, and then seeing, you know, maybe all the fears about what was going to happen or how it would be if I don't eat, don't manifest. And instead, and a couple people have told me that, they discover, wow, all the stuff that went on and going to get that food, at tea, and I wasn't even hungry, you know? I don't even miss it. In fact, it's a pleasure. I call it, this is totally me, okay? The hell realm of the dining room, you know, in the middle of a retreat. Like, oh my God, just not to have to go there. It's so wonderful. But but really seeing, it's just a place to explore. Some people find that they, they don't eat and they have a real idea they don't want to, and it's really bad for their body. And they actually need to eat, not even particularly wanting the particular food or feeling hungry, but they actually need to eat for health reasons. That's also important. You know, it's not always about not eating. It may be about eating. You're eating for health, for comfort, for the sustaining of the body, for living at ease. So it might be i'm talking to some of us. i have the same thing you know i go every night i would just go and have half a rice cake or half an apple and peanut butter and i would just do it without thinking about not oh should i have this this time or should i have this that time and all that oh, and that just feeds the wanting but my body gets a little weak without it so i go just take this i take that i go eat it finished some nights it's pleasant some nights it's not some nights it's but it's just you're doing it really out of wisdom, clear seeing. This is what's needed. You, you see, it can be really interesting to see how we relate to things. I remember one retreat a long, long time ago. I had one particular dress with me, and I started to notice whenever you know, on your retreat you have what you have, right? You just have to wear whatever you have right? (laughs) And and I had this, it was a long retreat, and this one dress, whenever I put it on, it really generated, I really liked it. And the room I was staying in had this full-length mirror. So every time I'd go by, I'd look at the dress. And then I would just see, I mean, this is so nothing, you know, we could say this is being really too picky, Yoon. But I started to notice that just the wanting to look at the dress, and then wanting to wear it, and not noticing that was unwise attention, and it was really feeding, then, you know, I start wanting something else, and wanting something else, and sense desire got stronger. And then bhava tanha would get stronger, because then I'd think about, you know, I, don't, I guess I thought I looked good in it, or I wouldn't have liked it. I mean, you don't like things you think you look horrible in. But <laughs> anyway, just to see how all that happened, how am I relating to this? And then I remember when I was, uh, I was a nun in Thailand for about a year, and so there's something really so nice. You just wear white there. And you have, you know, three outfits, that's it. You wear one, you wash one, it's drying, you wear the other one. And there's nothing to think about, about it. Yeah, and it's, it's what you need, it's more than what you need in the heat, it's much more than what you need, as Bonte was saying, but you got no choice. But all this extra kind of wanting and meing around something as simple as what you wear wasn't there. And that's I, such a relief. I remember I came back and I was, was back on staff here after that. And I was like standing one morning looking in the closet, having to decide what to wear. And it was like, oh, was so, so unpleasant. <laughs> I was also caught in it. I mean, there was wanting. What should i wear should i wear this should i wear this should i wear that just oh my god it was so nice just to have three outfits and not even think about it but you notice i didn't stick with that did i it's possible i could just when my mother was getting (laughs) now i'm going out there when (laughs) the last few years of my mother's life she had progressive dementia but she was always um up until almost the end. She was always very, she took good care of herself. She was always very ladylike somehow, always looked really nice. And, but then we got, so we called it the uniform, my brother and sister and I, but she always had a pair of black pants and a nice blouse and just a bunch of the same ones because she couldn't, you know, with dementia, it's really hard to make choices. So she just could put on the same, we call it the uniform, you know, so you notice I didn't go that way. So we look at these things. And I do look at it. And some days I just grab something and put it on. And some days there's an, oh, and this and this and that. This is where we bring in our attention. We notice. How do we use things? Give awareness to that. And this is what can bring in, um, at times, just a simple sense of contentment. Not using more than we need. And using things, not out of aversion, but for the, the comfort, the ease, the continuance of this body and for your support in your life and in your practice. So, attention to how we use things. The next one is, Asava's abandoned by, now the word here is enduring or tolerating. I prefer, find it more helpful to use patience. Patience is a really, it's one of the paramis. It's a really powerful force in our mind, something that we can develop whenever there's difficulties on or off retreat. Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely bears cold, heat, hunger, thirst, contact with flies and wind, burning and creeping things. Remember, they're sitting outside in the woods. And bodily feelings that are painful, disagreeable. And then while pains and fever of defilement right, might arise in one who, who was not patient, there is no defilement arising in one who is patient. So what does that mean? I mean, this, we're, we've all been working with this, the whole retreat, right? Being with difficult aspects, that whether it's uh, external or internal, and we all know there's times we're not patient, But times, and patient, I don't like enduring because that has a little tinge of disconnect, all right? This annoying sound is going to, I'll just endure it, but we kind of pull down, pull away and shut down and wait for it to go away, right? That's not patience. Patience is really, as Suzuki would, Roshi would call it, the long-enduring mind, the heart, the sense of really just being, present without reaction equanimity he said the buddha said to his his son rahula develop a mind that is like the earth for when you develop a mind or meditation that is like the earth arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts contacts will not invade your mind and remain and he says all kinds of stuff is thrown on the earth beautiful stuff ugly stuff disgusting stuff the earth uh, does is not horrified humiliated or disgusted because of that and he goes through all the different he gives the same advice for all the different um, elements including space but this sense of it's like this now the long enduring mind is a big aspect of practice We have tons of um, stories about practice in Asia in terms of patience because the conditions are just so different, and there's a lot of stuff that happens that there's no way you have control over it. And if you want to keep being there, you have to either develop patience or you just go nuts, you know. But the stories I can tell you a couple. But the stories, the thing about them that's energizing isn't like. I'm so great, I made it through this as some kind of warrior. Sometimes you feel like that. But it's more that as we learn, patience can really be with this. The heart, the mind, it truly relaxes, accepts what's happening without being so aversive, without being so caught up in it. And we can find we can really be at peace in the same circumstances that were causing us so much distress before. So just little little simple examples. I'll go back to when I was a nun in Thailand. So it was really hot in the hot season, and you had to stay in, in my kuti, which has like a tin roof. And so I remember when I'd see the sun coming up in the morning, and you have like three layers of clothes, long sleeves and underwear and long sleeves and a robe over like Bonte has, and they're usually polyester. And so you see the sun coming up and, you know, my heart would just sink, oh gosh, I won't make it through another day, you know. And this and I remember Ajahn Samado's line, you know, I can't bear it another minute, sweating through my robes. And then I'd find that I could. Or one of the places I stayed uh, at that time, quite some years ago, uh, 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 a Western woman being a Mechi, there were none, there weren't very many in the country. So, you know, in in a lot of the, um, in the Watts, in the meditation centers there, they're also like parks. and, And so people use them like you would use a synagogue or a church here. So on weekends, a lot of people come sometimes in buses or whatever to, you know, to hear a Dhamma talk, to take the eight precepts, to walk around in the beautiful surroundings, you know. And so... They would, I'd be doing my walking path and I'd turn around and someone would be right there with a camera in my face, you know, take my picture. <laughs> you can imagine, you know, or they'd come up and I'd be in my kuti and they'd just come up and stand in the door and stare in. Oh, what's she doing now? She's meditating. Oh, look at that, you know. I mean, I didn't understand Thai, but I could tell that's kind of like what they were saying. And so, you know, first it's like, how can I stop this? They can't be doing this. You know, all the usual stuff. You have to surrender. What are you going to do? You have to surrender to it. And then really finding that that's, it's possible. It wouldn't be your optimum conditions. But it's possible to find this sense of patience. And again, it's really bringing wise attention. What was fueling the kalesa? My sense of how it should be and how I could fix it and what I could do. That was fueling maha dosa and unhappiness and becoming of patience, okay, allows the way to a peaceful mind and heart in that moment. And so that's really what we work with a lot of the time. There's a saying, Pachul Rinpoche, who's a Tibetan, who was a great Tibetan teacher. Well, I can't find him. He's talking about the parami of patience. And he talks about the three types of transcendent patience. I just want to name them because there's one retreat where Those three would just keep coming through my mind and just really inspire me and support me. And it's like patience when wronged, when somebody treats you wrong. The second is the patience to bear hardships for the Dhamma, which we're all doing, you know, patience to bear hardships for the Dhamma. And the third is the patience to face the profound truth without getting too lost in fear. It says without fear. Fear will come, but not abandoning facing the profound truth because of fear. And at different times, that would just give me a little energy to keep going. Not that you should be perfectly patient, but just gives a little energy to keep going. Now, the next one I find really interesting because it's, it's kind of like the matching pair with patience. Because sometimes we think... Um, the Buddha's being very, um, or we can get very idealistic. I should be able to be with anything. Have you ever had that thought? Usually, when you're not able to be with something, right? But I should be able to be with anything, and that that was what the Buddha was saying. But this next one is the asava's abandoned by avoiding. Avoiding what's too intense. So he gives examples a bhikkhu reflecting wisely avoids a savage elephant (laughs) all right a savage bull a savage dog a snake a stump okay a stump you don't trip over a stump a bramble patch a cliff a cesspool a sewer you know frequenting or hanging out with unwise friends evil companions but i mean i i love this because he's not saying just be with anything; it's reflecting wisely. We look and see what is fueling, what is feeding the growth of the asavas of sense, desire, of becoming, of ignorance, self, 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 confusion. You know, and so okay, maybe we don't have savage elephants here, and the dogs that bark are always behind the fence. There, we have savage mosquitoes, but you can't avoid them too much. But often, here, it can be that what is really intense, what we need to avoid, is when something too, too intense and too strong is coming up inside of us, right? And we've talked about this a lot, where what's coming up is just the energy of the kalesa, of the trauma, or the fear, or it can even be greed, it coming up is so strong, and we're trying to be mindful, but the mindfulness energy just is nowhere near as strong as this really difficult thing. And you know how we keep saying, then it, the wise attention sees that even in trying to be mindful, the Kalesa is just growing and growing. And that's when I, I mentioned this a couple of times ago when Thich Nhat Hanh says, go look at the herbs at night. We say, sometimes that doesn't do it. Sometimes it's got to be a lot And we have to completely move away, completely avoid. There's no right or wrong in this, but it's really looking and seeing what supports. What supports are coming back into a balance of heart and mind, not continuing to do what we think we should do if it's actually fueling the calaisas. So not to hold on to a view, use wise attention, and this is all mindfulness space to see what's really going on. It's very practical. therefore so That's why we're not doing this in Times Square. That's why we say, please give up your, your cell phones. It just makes it so much harder for no good reason. That's why so much of the time we're telling people, take your attention away from what's happening. Sometimes you even need to stop doing formal meditation altogether and just spend a couple of days taking walks, being quiet, drinking tea, because that's actually more supportive of our ongoing freedom of heart and mind it's not always about doing formal practice it's looking at all these different ways what's feeding the kalesa what's feeding the wholesome mind in all these different areas of our life so sometimes the avoidance itself is difficult because what i've discovered for me is sometimes The thing I need to avoid isn't unpleasant. So I've noticed for myself, if I'm really too comfortable, that can really feed the sloth and torpor of just, ah, I just don't want to be with this difficult thing. And it can also feed sense desire. I'm not saying to to create real unpleasant suffering, but I've just noticed in myself too too much comfort is actually not helpful. And i would avoid it i think in some ways on the eight precepts the high and luxurious bed piece is along that those lines you know if you're just too comfortable we just kind of start lolling around looking and seeing and avoiding doesn't mean it's just what we prefer not to be with if you're avoiding something and the avoidance is actually feeding aversion you notice that as well okay maybe avoidance isn't the thing maybe patience is the thing what's helping to support the kalesa diminishing or not arising. So this isn't to make you crazy that you got to go through it all, but it's really just to see there's all these different means, all these different methods, and the Buddha is offering all of them. Let's see. Okay, just two more, and I'll say them quickly. The next one he calls removing. We've mentioned this as well, too. It's, Hirabhikku reflecting wisely does not endure an arisen thought of sense desire or ill will or cruelty. She abandons it, does away with it. So, again, we know it means what we've talked about as determination, as the sword of wisdom. It's not always possible. So it's not done with aversion, but when with wisely reflecting. And there's times we can really do this, right? We've talked about it. We see this particular line of thought is leading to nothing but more wanting, more fear, more agitation about the future. It's often agitation about the future, agitation about the past. And there's oftentimes we can go, no, not now. You know, that, that determination from skillfulness, not from aversion, not from pushing away. If it's pushing away, then just divert your attention to something else. But sometimes we can really say, not now. When I talked a couple of weeks ago about having this autoimmune disease and seeing how the papancha and the future and the worrying was taken over so much. And I really saw how with mindfulness wisdom, when it was present, And there'd be some unpleasant sensation in my mind. Oh no, how's this going to be next week, next year? And I could say, you know, not now. I really don't know. I don't know that. Let's just be present. And it was like amazing. That could really happen. When there's enough mindfulness wisdom, you know, and you really, I don't need to do that now. Not now. That's removing. That's abandoning. Let's think of it as abandoning. If you're trying to abandon, and the whole thing's just getting more and more ramped up, then you know it's not being done with wise attention, it's being done with wanting or aversion. So then you choose something else. Then it's usually really take your attention away from that object altogether and move to something completely neutral. There's something I wanted to say about that. Yeah, redirect the attention. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. This is a place where... The four Brahma-viharas can be useful, you know, kind of where we talk about sometimes substituting a thought of, say, you're annoyed at somebody and you substitute a metta thought. Now, we all know half the time that doesn't work. You're saying metta filled with aversion, right? And you can notice that with your wise attention and go, okay, the words are metta. What's being fed is aversion. Shift to something neutral. You just look and see. But sometimes, and the more we practice it, sometimes it can surprise you. Someone was telling me the other day that it really worked. Someone was, bugging and they, someone was bugging them and they just switched to mudita. And they're like, oh my goodness, it really happened. It's not even so much you have to feel such a great thing, but first you're, you're choosing a wholesome thought. So even if you don't feel the mudita, but you're not feeling the envy, that's already good. That's already good. I said, "Oh no, no, I wish I had that." Oh, may your happiness continue. Even just flat. It's not feeding the kalesa. So, this is the place that you can explore in terms of abandoning these unwholesome thoughts that are really fueling the asavas <laughs> that you can explore using the phrases of the brahmaviharas and sometimes you find that the phrase actually brings in, that actually you really mean it, not expecting to. And the last one, which is of course a whole talk in itself, don't worry, I'm not gonna give it, is (laughs) developing, because John already gave it, developing the seven factors of awakening. A bhikkhu reflecting wisely develops the seven factors of awakening so i'm just going to name them all john spoke of them all but and they develop naturally also through our meditation but they also even in daily life at times we can tune in like mindfulness we can always remember mindfulness so the the factors are mindfulness investigation of dhamma this interest in what's occurring not thinking about energy, virya, not shrinking back from difficult. Piti, this kind of joyful interest, Guy spoke about last night. Tranquility, again, Guy talked about it last night. Samadhi, collectedness, and equanimity. So those seven factors. And as the Buddha said, this is actually in his Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta. Mindfulness of breathing, Developed and repeatedly developed and cultivated fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness, developed and repeatedly practiced, fulfill the seven, perfect the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment, developed and repeatedly practiced, fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. So these are the seven ways he's talking about. All of them, different ways of how to live, how to really look and get interested out of love for yourself and all beings to see what's fueling the kalesas, the yasavas, and what's not in this moment. And there's always some way that's available. So I'll just end with a short quotation from Deepa Ma who apparently had one of one of the more pure mind hearts that we know of i mean you never really know another person's but she says there is so much sameness in ordinary life we are always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses when greed hatred and delusion are gone you see everything fresh and new All the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. Zest is kind of like perky happiness. So even in a moment, free from Kalesa, and hopefully as hard as it is, those moments give us the faith, as Annie said today, to keep on the path in all the aspects of our life. So thank you for listening.